Yeah, incarnate gender is not selective by the personality, you cannot interpret your gender by your perception of it. Gender is an assignment from nature and not an option of perception. Neither does this fact make transgender gay otherwise a wrong perspective. The metaphysical theater neither endorses or rebukes these people experimenting with self-perception. The metaphysical theater knows that it is all things to all men and need not make it clear to the cloudy the solution to their own lack of light within. Plotinus Plotinus slash PLTANS slash Greek. C204 minus 270 was a major Greek speaking philosopher of the ancient world. In his philosophy, there are three principles the one, the intellect, and the soul. His teacher was Amorius Succas, and he is of the Platonic tradition. Historians of the 19th century invented the term Neoplatonism and applied it to him and his philosophy which was influential in late antiquity. Much of the biographical information about Plotinus comes from Paul Ruffer's preface to his edition of Plotinus Eneps. His metaphysical writings have inspired centuries of pagan, Islamic, Jewish, Christian, and Gnostic metaphysicians and mystics. Plotinus, born, century 204 fifths. Lycopolis, Egypt, Roman Empire died, 270, aged 64 to 65, Campania, Roman Empire era, Ancient Philosophy, Region, Western Philosophy, School, Neord Platonism, Main Interests, Platonism, Metaphysics, Mysticism, Notable Ideas, Emanation of all things from the one three main epistists, the one, Intellect, and Sobonosis, Influences, Ammonius Saccas, Plato, Nis of Epima, Alexander Aphrodisius, Middle Platonism, Pythagoras influenced, Porphyry, Emamblix, Julian, Hebrew, Heracles, Pratus, Stasius, Simplicius, Augustine, Boethius, Pseudodionysius, Charles Cortus Regna, Alkindi, Avicenna, Bonaventure, Chemists Pletha, Arthur Schopenhauer, Henry Bretterson, Arthur Druze, Christianity, Gnosticism, Renaissance Platonism, Traditionalist School Metaphysical Theater Pedicastianangra FM Biography. Porphyry reported that Plotinus was 66 years old when he died in 270, the second year of the reign of the Emperor Claudius II, thus giving us the year of his teacher's birth as around 205. Yanapius reported that Plotinus was born in the Deltaic Lycopolis in Egypt, which has led to speculations that he may have been a native Egyptian of Roman, Greek, or Hellenized Egyptian descent. Plotinus had an inherent distrust of materiality, an attitude common to Platonism, holding to the view that phenomena were a corporeal mimicry, mimesis, of something higher and intelligible vii, which was the truer part of genuine being. This distrust extended to the body, including his own. It is reported by Porphyry that at one point he refused to have his portrait painted, presumably for much the same reasons of dislike. Likewise Plotinus never discussed his ancestry, childhood, or his place or date of birth. From all accounts his personal and social life exhibited the highest moral and spiritual standards. Plotinus took up the study of philosophy at the age of 27, around the year 232, and traveled to Alexandria to study. There he was dissatisfied with every teacher he encountered until an acquaintance suggested he listen to the ideas of Ammonius Saccas. Upon hearing Ammonius' lecture, he declared to his friend, this was the man I was looking for, and began to study intently under his new instructor. 
Besides Ammonius, Plotinus was also influenced by the works of Alexander of Aphrodisus, Nis, and various Torics. Expedition to Persia and return to Oru. After spending the next 11 years in Alexandria, he then decided, at the age of around 38, to investigate the philosophical teachings of the Persian philosophers and the Indian philosophers. In the pursuit of this endeavor he left Alexandria and joined the army of Gordian III as it marched on Persia. However, the campaign was a failure and Ascordian's eventual death Plotinus found himself abandoned in a hostile land and only with difficulty found his way back to safety in Antioch. At the age of 40, during the reign of Philip the Arab, he came to Rome where he stayed for most of the remainder of his life. There he attracted a number of students. His innermost circle included Porphyry, Amelius Gentilens of Tuscany, the senator Castricus Ferramus, and Eustachius of Alexandria, a doctor who devoted himself to learning from Plotinus and attending to him until his death. Other students included Zephas, an Arab by ancestry who died before Plotinus, leaving him a legacy and some land, Zeticus, a critic and poet, Polymus, a doctor of Cethopolis and Serapin from Alexandria. He had students amongst the Roman Senate beside Castricus, such as Marcellus Orontius, Sabinius, and Regentins. Women were also numbered amongst his students, including Gamina, in whose house he lived during his residence in Rome, and her daughter, also Gamina, and Amphicle, the wife of Ariston, the son of the Amblichs. Finally, Plotinus was a correspondent of the philosopher Cassius Langinus, later life. While in Rome Plotinus also gained the respect of the Emperor and his wife Salonina. At one point Plotinus attempted to interest Galenes in rebuilding an abandoned settlement in Campania, known as the City of Philosophies, where the inhabitants would live under the constitution set out in Plato's laws. An imperial subsidy was never granted, for reasons unknown to Porphyry, who reports the incident. Porphyry subsequently went to live in Sicily, where word reached him that his former teacher had died. The philosopher spent his final days in seclusion on an estate in Campania which his friend Zithas had bequeathed him. According to the account of Eustachis, who attended him at the end, Plotinus' final words were, Try to raise the divine in your cells to the divine in the all. Eustachis read her result to snake crept under the bed where Plotinus lay, and he slipped away through a hole in the wall. At the same moment the philosopher died, Plotinus rolled the asses that became the energies over a period of several years from Ka. 253 until a few months before his death 17 years later. Porphyry makes note that the Ennids, before being compiled and arranged by himself, were merely the enormous collection of notes and asses which Plotinus used in his lectures and debates, rather than a formal book. Plotinus was unable to revise his own work due to his propriety, yet his writings required extensive editing, according to Porphyry. His master's handwriting was atrocious, he did not properly separate his words, and he cared little for niceties of spelling. Plotinus intensely disliked the editorial process, and turned the task to Porphyry, who not only polished them but put them into the arrangement we now have. Major Ideas 1. Plotinus taught that there is a supreme, totally transcendent one, containing no division, multiplicity of distinction, beyond all categories of being and non-being. His one cannot be any existing thing, nor is it merely the sum of all things, compare historic doctrine of disbelief in non-material existence, but it's prior to all existence. 
Plotinus identified his one with the concept of good and the principle of beauty. 6969 Neville Goddard is the top torn and speaks as the one. Only here in the metaphysical theater will you be given the opportunity to save yourself by understanding his one concept encompassed thinker and object. Even the self-contemplating intelligence, the gnosis of the ness, must contain duality. Once you have altered the good, ignore further thought, by any addition, and in proportion to that addition, you introduce a deficiency. Plotinus denies netrans, self-awareness or any other action, ergo to the one, rather if we insist on describing it further, we must call the one a sheer potentiality, dynamis, or without which, nothing could exist. As Plotinus explains in both places and elsewhere, it is impossible for the one to be being or a self-aware creator of God. At Plotinus compared the one to light, the divine intellect slash ness, ness, first will towards good, to the sun, and lastly the soul, psyche, to the moon whose light is merely a derivative conglomeration of light from the sun. The first light could exist without any celestial body. The one, being beyond all attributes including being and non-being, is the source of the world but not through any active creation, willful otherwise, since activity cannot be ascribed to the unchangeable, immutable one. Plotinus argues instead that the multiple cannot exist without the simple. The less perfect must, of necessity, emanate, or issue forth, from the perfect or more perfect. Thus, all of creation emanates from the one in succeeding stages of lesser and lesser perfection. These stages are not temporally isolated, but occur throughout time as a constant process. Later in the old Platonic philosophies, especially Iamblitz, add hundreds of intermediate beings as emanations between the one and humanity, but Plotinus' system was much simpler in comparison. The one is not just an intellectual concept but something that can be experienced, an experience where one goes beyond all multiplicity. Plotinus writes, we ought not even to say that he will see, but he will be at which he sees, if indeed it is possible any longer to distinguish between seen and seen, and not boldly to affirm that the two are one. Emanation by the one. Superficially considered, Plotinus seems to offer an alternative to the orthodox Christian notion of creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, although Plotinus never mentions Christianity in any of his works. The metaphysics of emanation, however, just like the metaphysics of creation, confirms the absolute transcendence of the one or of the divine, as the source of the being of all things that yet remains transcendent of them in its own nature. The one is in no way affected or diminished by these emanations, just as the Christian God in Norway is affected by some sort of exterior nothingness. Plotinus, using a venerable analogy that would become crucial for P, largely Neoplatonic, metaphysics of developed Christian thought, likens the one to the sun which emanates light indiscriminately without thereby diminishing itself, or a reflection in a mirror which in no way diminishes or otherwise alters the object being reflected. The first emanation is Ness, divine mind, laws cause, order, thought, reason, identified metaphorically with the demon Plato's Timus. It is the first will towards good. From Ness proceeds the world soul, which Plotinus subdivides into upper and lower, identifying the lower aspect of soul with nature. From the world soul proceeds individual human souls, and finally, matter at the lowest level of being and thus the least perfected level of the cosmos. 
Despite this relatively pedestrian assessment of the material world, Platonus asserted the ultimately divine nature of material creation since it ultimately drives from the one, through the mediums of Ness and the world soil. It is by the good or through beauty that we recognize the one, in material things and then in the forms. The essentially devotional nature of Platonist philosophy may be further illustrated by his concept of attaining ecstatic union with the one, Gnosis. Porphyry relates that Plotinus attained such a union four times during the years he knew him. This may be related to enlightenment, liberation, and other concepts of mystical union common to many Eastern and Western traditions, the true human and happiness. The philosophy of Plotinus has always exerted a peculiar fascination upon those whose discontent with things as there has led them to seek the realities behind what they took to be merely the appearances of the sense. The philosophy of Plotinus, representative books from the Ennids, authentic human happiness for Plotinus consists of the true human identifying with that which is the best in the universe. Because happiness is beyond anything physical, Plotinus stresses the point that worldly fortune does not control true human happiness, and thus there exists no single human being that does not either effectively possess this thing we hope to constitute happiness. The issue of happiness is one of Plotinus' greatest imprints on Western thought, as he is one of the first to introduce the idea that just happiness is attainable only within consciousness. True happiness has no cause reason or agenda. The true human is an incorporeal contemplative capacity of the soul, and superior to all things corporeal. It then follows that real human happiness is independent of the physical world. Real happiness is, instead, dependent on the metaphysical and authentic human being found in this highest capacity of reason. For a man, and especially the proficient, is not the complement of soul and body. The proof is that man can be disengaged from the body and disdain its nominal good as the flesh is doomed. The essence are spirit or individual awareness, even the personality is saved. The human who has achieved happiness will not be bothered by sickness, discomfort, etc., as his focus is on the greatest things. Authentic human happiness is the utilization of the most authentically human capacity of contemplation. Even in daily, physical action, the flourishing human's act is determined by the higher phase of the soil even in the most dramatic arguments Plotinus considers, if the proficient is subject to extreme physical torture, for example, he concludes this only strengthens his claim of true happiness being metaphysical, as the truly happy human being would understand that which is being tortured is merely a body, not the conscious self, and happiness could persist. Hung upside down upon this world myself Jesus Christ is crucified. Plotinus offers a comprehensive description of his conception of a person who has achieved eumonia. The perfect life involves a man who commands reason and contemplation. A happy person will not sway between happy and sad, as many of Plotinus' contemporaries believed. Stoics, for example, question the ability of someone to be happy, presupposing happiness is contemplation, if they are mentally incapacitated or even asleep. Plotinus disregards this claim, as the soul and to human do not sleep or even exist in time, nor will a living human who has achieved eumonia suddenly stop using its greatest, most authentic capacity just because of the body's discomfort in the physical realm. The proficients will set always and only inward. Overall, happiness for Plotinus is a flight from this world's ways and things. And a focus on the highest, that is forms and the one, Gnosis.
Gnosis is the word for a mystical oneness, union, or unity in classical Greek. In Platonism, and especially in Neoplatonism, the goal of Gnosis is union with what is fundamental in reality, the one resource, or the monad. As is specified in the writings of Plotinus on knowledge, one can reach a state of tabularessa, a blank state where the individual may grasp or emerge with the one. This absolute simplicity means that the ness or the person is then dissolved, completely absorbed back into the monad. Here within the energies of Plotinus the monad can be referred to as the good above the demic. The monad autonomous, force, is of one singular expression, the will or the one is the good, all is contained in the monad and the monad is all, pantheism. All division is reconciled in the one, the final stage before reaching singularity, called duality, dyad, is completely reconciled in the monad, source or one, semanism. As the one, source or substance of all things the monad is all encompassing. As infinite and indeterminate all is reconciled in the Dolomisa one. It is the Demarch or the second emanation that is the Ness in Platinus. It is the Demarch, creator, action, energy, or the Ness that proceeds and therefore causes the force, potential or one, to manifest as energy, or the dyad called the material world. Ness as being, being in perception, intellect, manifest what is called solid, world solid. Gnosis for Plotinus was defined in his works as a reversing of the ontological process of consciousness via meditation, in the Western mind to uncontemplate, toward no thought, nesodemic, and no division, dyad, within the individual, being. Plotinus works his teachings to reconcile not only Plato with Aristotle but also the various world religions that he had personal contact with during his various travels. Plotinus works have an ascetic character in that they reject matter as an illusion, non-existent. Matter was strictly treated as immanent, with matter as essential to its being, having no two or transcendental character or essence, substance or This approach is called philosophical idealism. Relation with contemporary philosophy and religion. Plotinus's relation to Plato for several centuries after the Protestant Reformation, Neoplatonism was condemned as a decadent and oriental distortion of Platonism. In a famous 1929 essay, Eardot showed that key conceptions of Neoplatonism could be traced from their origin in Plato's dialogues, through his immediate followers, for instance, Spiazippus, and the Neopithagoreans, to Plotinus and the Neoplatonists. Thus Plotinus' philosophy was, he argued, not the starting point of Neoplatonism but its intellectual culmination further search reinforced this view and by 1954 Merlin could say the present tendency is for bridging rather than widening the gap separating Platonism from Neoplatonism. Since the 1950s, the Tubingdon School of Plato Interpretation has argued that the so-called unwritten doctrines of Plato debated by Aristotle and the early academy strongly resemble Plotinus's metaphysics. In this case, the Neoplatonic creding of Plato would be, at least in the central area, historically justified. This implies that Neoplatonism is less of an innovation than it appears without the recognition of Plato's unwritten doctrines. Advocates of the Tubingdon School emphasize this advantage of their interpretation. They see Plotinus as advancing a tradition of thought begun by Plato himself. Plotinus's metaphysics, at least in broad outline, was therefore already familiar to the first generation of Plato's students. This confirms Plotinus' own view 
for he considered himself not the inventor of a system but the faithful interpreter of Plato's doctrines, Plotinus and the Gnostics. At least two modern conferences within Hellenic philosophy fields of study have been held in order to address what Plotinus stated in his tract against the Gnostics and whom he was addressing it to, in order to separate and clarify the events and persons involved in the origin of the term Gnostic. From the dialogue, it appears that the word had an origin in the Platonic and Hellenistic tradition long before the group calling themselves Gnostics, or the group covered under the modern term Gnosticism, ever appeared. It would seem that this shift from Platonic to Gnostic usage has led many people to confusion. The strategy of sectarians taking Greek terms from philosophical contexts and drawing them to religious contexts was popular in Christianity, the cult of Isis and other ancient religious contexts including Hermetic ones, see Alexander of Eglantis for an example. Plotinus and the Neoplatonists view Gnosticism as a form of heresy or a sectarianism to the Pythagorean and Platonic philosophy of the Mediterranean and Middle East. He accused them of using senseless jargon and being overly dramatic and insolent in the distortion of Plato's ontology. Plotinus attacks his opponents as untraditional, irrational and immoral and arrogant. He also attacks them as elitist and blasphemous to Plato for the Gnostics despising the immaterial world and its maker. The Neo-Platonic movement, though Plotinus would have simply referred to himself as a philosopher of Plato, seems to be motivated by the desire of Plotinus to revive the pagan philosophical tradition. Plotinus was not claiming to innovate with the Ennids, but to clarify aspects of the works of Plato that he considered misrepresented or misunderstood. Plotinus does not claim to be an innovator, but rather a communicator of a tradition. Plotinus referred to tradition as a way to interpret Plato's intentions. Because the teachings of Plato were for members of the academy rather than the general public, it was easy for outsiders to misunderstand Plato's meaning. However, Plotinus attempted to clarify how the philosophers of the academy had now arrived at the same conclusions, such as mysotheism or decism of the creator God as an answer to the problem of evil, as the targets of his criticism. Against causal astrology, Plotinus seems to be one of the first to argue against the still popular notion of causal astrology. In the late tractate 2.3, are these stars causes? Plotinus makes the argument that specific stars influencing one's origin, a common Hellenistic theme, attributes irrationality to a perfect universe, and invites more interpreted. Clarification needed he does, however, claim the stars and planets are ensouled, as witnessed by their movement, influence, ancient world. The Empire Julian the Apollo state was deeply influenced by Neoplatonism, as was Hippotor of Alexandria, as well as many Christians, most notably Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. Saint Augustine, though author often to as a Platonist, acquired his Platonist philosophy through the mediation of the Neo-Platonist teachings of Plotinus. Christianity, Plotinus philosophy had an influence on the development of Christian theology. In a history of Western philosophy, philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote that, to the Christian, the other world was the kingdom of heaven, to be enjoyed after death. To the Platonist, it was the eternal world of ideas, the real world as opposed to that of illusory appearance. Christian theologians combined these points of view and embodied much of the philosophy of Plotinus. Plotinus, accordingly, is historically important as an influence in molding the Christianity of the Middle Ages and of theology. 
the Eastern Orthodox position on energy, for example, is often contrasted with the position of the Roman Catholic Church, and, in part, this is attributed to varying interpretations of Aristotle and Plotinus, either through Thomas Aquinas for the Roman Catholics or Gregory of Nyssa for the Orthodox Christians. Islam Muhammad Platonism and the ideas of Plotinus influenced medieval Islam as well, since the Sunni Abbasids fused Greek concepts into sponsoring state texts, and they found great influence amongst the Ismaili Shia. Persian philosophers as well, such as Muhammad al-Nasafi and Abu Qubasijistani. By the 11th century, Muhammad Platonism was adopted by the Fatimic state of Egypt, and taught by the Dehli. Muhammad Platonism was brought to the Fatimid court by Hamid al-Din al-Qurani, although his teachings differed from Nasafi and Sajistani, who were more aligned with original teachings of Plotinus. The teachings of Qurani in turn influenced philosophers such as Nasib Qasra of Persia, Judaism, as with Islam and Christianity, Muhammad Platonism in general and Plotinus in particular influenced speculative thought. Notable thinkers expressing Neoplatonic themes are Solomon ibn Kabiral, Latin, Avikagran, and Moses ben Maimon, Latin, Maimonides. As with Islam and Christianity, apophatic theology and the privative nature of evil are two prominent themes that such thinkers picked up from either Plotinus or his successors, Renaissance. In the Renaissance the philosopher Marsili Orfi Kino set up an academy under the patronage of Corsimo di Medici in Florence, mirroring the Plato. His work was of great importance in reconciling the philosophy of Plato directly with Christianity. One of his most distinguished pupils was Pico della Marambola, author of an oration on the dignity of man. Our term Neoplatonist has its origins in the Renaissance, England. In England, Plotinus was the cardinal influence on the 17th-century school of the Cambridge Platonists, and on numerous writers from Samuel Taylor Coleridge to W. W. E. Yeats and Kathleen Rain. India, Sartre Radhakrishnan and Ananda Kumarasquami used the writing of Plotinus in the old texts as a superlative elaboration upon Indian Manism, specifically Upanishadic and Advaita Vedantic thought. Kumaraswami has compared Plotinus' teachings to the Hindu school of Advaita Vedanta, Advaita meaning not to Anandu. Advaita Vedanta and Neoplatonism have been compared by J.F. Starr, Frederick Carpleston, Aldor Macris and Mario Piantelli, Radhakrishnan, Gwen Griffith Dickinson, and John Y. Fenton. Deep in death to emerge alive conquered the ignorance that humanity holds all dear, shattered and never taken up again spiritual death, on this the metaphysical theoterpedicast of another dead cat, this one named Plotinus, it was engraved by hand on his flea collar. Your incarnate gender is not selective by the personality, you cannot interpret your gender by your perception of it. Gender is an assignment from nature and not an option of perception. Neither does this fact make transgender gay or otherwise a wrong perspective. The metaphysical theater neither endorses or rebukes these people experimenting with self-perception. The metaphysical theater knows that it is all things to all men and need not make clearer to the cloudy the solution to their own lack of light within. Plotinus Plotinus, slash PLTANS slash, Greek. C204 fifths, minus 270, was a major Greek-speaking philosopher of the ancient world. In his philosophy there are three principles, the one, the intellect, and the soul. 
His teacher was Amorius Saccas, and he is of the Platonic tradition. Historians of the 19th century invented the term Neoplatonism and applied it to him and his philosophy which was influential in late antiquity. Much of the biographical information about Platonus comes from Paul Rufo's preface to his edition of Platonus Anabs. His metaphysical writings have inspired centuries of pagan, Islamic, Jewish, Christian, and Gnostic metaphysicians and mystics. Platinus, born, century 204 fifths, Lycopolis, Egypt, Roman Empire died, 270, aged 64 to 65, Campania, Roman Empire era, ancient philosophy, region, western philosophy, school, Neoplatonism, main interests, Platonism, metaphysics, mysticism, notable ideas, emanation of all things from the one three main epistists. The one, intellect, and Sorbonosis, influences, Ammonius Saccas, Plato, Nis of Epima, Alexandra Aphrodisius, Middle Platonism, Pythagoras influenced, Porphyry, Emamblix, Julian, Hebrew, Heracles, Pretus, Stasius, Simplicius, Augustine, Boethius, Pseudodionysius, Charles Cortus Regna, Alkindi, Avicenna, Barnadmenture, Chemists Pletha, Arthur Schorpenhauer, Henry Bretterson, Arthur Druze, Christianity, Gnosticism, Renaissance Platonism, Traditionalist School Metaphysical Theater Pedicatanangra FM Biography. Porphyry reported that Platonus was 66 years old when he died in 270, the second year of the reign of the Emperor Claudius II, thus giving us the year of his teacher's birth as around 205. Young Appius reported that Platonus was born in the Deltaic Lycopolis in Egypt, which has led to speculations that he may have been a native Egyptian of Roman, Greek, or Hellenized Egyptian descent. Platonus had an inherent distrust of materiality, an attitude common to Platonism, holding to the view that phenomena were a portrait mimicry, mimesis, of something higher and intelligible vii, which was the truer part of genuine being. This distrust extended to the body, including his own. It is reported by Porphyry that at one point he refused to have his portrait painted, presumably for much the same reasons of dislike. Likewise Platonus never discussed his ancestry, childhood, or his place or date of birth. From all accounts his personal and social life exhibited the highest moral and spiritual standards. Platonus took up the study of philosophy at the age of 27, around the year 232, and traveled to Alexandria to study. There he was dissatisfied with every teacher he encountered until an acquaintance suggested he listen to the ideas of Ammonius Saccas. Upon hearing Ammonius lecture, he declared to his friend, this was the man I was looking for, and began to study intently under his new instructor. Besides Ammonius, Platonus was also influenced by the works of Alexander of Aphrodisius, Nis, and various Stoics. Expedition to Persia and return to Orum. After spending the next 11 years in Alexandria, he then decided, at the age of around 38, to investigate the philosophical teachings of the Persian philosophers and the Indian philosophers. In the pursuit of this endeavor he left Alexandria and joined the army of Gordian III as it marched on Persia. However, the campaign was a failure, and Gordian's eventual death Platinus found himself abandoned in a hostile land, and only with difficulty found his way back to safety in Antioch. At the age of 40, during the reign of Philip the Arab, he came to Rome, where he stayed for most of the remainder of his life. There he attracted a number of students. 
His innermost circle included Porphyry, Amelius Gentilens of Tuscany, the senator Kestricus Ferramus, and Eustachius of Alexandria, a doctor who devoted himself to learning from Plotinus and attending to him until his death. Other students included Zethus, an Arab by ancestry who died before Plotinus, leaving him a legacy and some land, Zeticus, a critic and poet, Polymus, a doctor of Cephalus, and Serapin from Alexandria. He had students amongst the Roman Senate beside Castricus, such as Marcellus Orontius, Sabinius, and Regentins. Women were also numbered amongst his students, including Gramina, in whose house he lived during his residence in Rome, and her daughter, also Gramina, and Amphicle, the wife of Arist and the son of the Amblich. Finally, Plotinus was a correspondent of the philosopher Cassius Langinus, later life. While in Rome Plotinus also gained the respect of the Emperor and his wife Salonina. At one point Plotinus attempted to interest Galenes in rebuilding an abandoned settlement in Campania, known as the City of Philosophies, where the inhabitants would live under the constitution set out in Plato's laws. An imperial subsidy was never granted, for reasons unknown to Porphyry, who reports the incident. Porphyry subsequently went to live in Sicily, where word reached him that his former teacher had died. The philosopher spent his final days in seclusion on an estate in Campania which his friend Zithas had bequeathed him. According to the account of Eustachis, who attended him at the end, Plotinus' final words were, Try to raise the divine in yourselves to the divine in the all. Eustachis Becker that a snake crept under the bed where Plotinus lay, and he slipped away through a hole in the wall. At the same moment the philosopher died. Plotinus rolled the asses that became the energies over a period of several years from Ka. 253 until a few months before his death 17 years later. Porphyry makes note that the Ennids, before being compiled and arranged by himself, were merely the enormous collection of knots and asses which Plotinus used in his lectures and debates, rather than a formal book. Plotinus was unable to revise his own work due to his right, yet his writings required extensive editing, according to Porphyry. His master's handwriting was atrocious, he did not properly separate his words, and he cared little for niceties of spelling. Plotinus intensely disliked the editorial process, and turned the task to Porphyry, who not only polished them but put them into the arrangement we now have. Major Ideas 1. Plotinus taught that there is a supreme, totally transcendent one, containing no division, no multiplicity of distinction, beyond all categories of being and non-being. His one cannot be any existing thing, nor is it merely the sum of all things, compare the historic doctrine of disbelief in non-material existence, but it's prior to all existence. Plotinus identified his one with the concept of good and the principle of beauty. 6969 Neville Goddard is the top storm and speaks as the one. Only here in the metaphysical theatre will you be given the opportunity to save yourself by understanding. His one concept encompassed thinker and object. Even the self-contemplating intelligence, the gnosis of the ness, must contain duality. Once you have altered the good, ignore further thought. By any addition, and in proportion to that addition, you introduce a deficiency. Plotinus denies netrans, self-awareness or any other action, ergo, to the one, rather, if we insist on describing it further, we must call the one a sheer potentiality, dynamis, or without which, nothing could exist. 
as Platinus explains in both place and elsewhere, it is impossible for the one to be being or a self-aware creator of God. At Platinus compared the one to light, the divine intellect slash ness, ness, first will towards good, to the sun, and lastly the soul, psyche, to the moon whose light is merely a derivative conglomeration of light from the sun. The first light could exist without any celestial body. The one, being beyond all attributes including being and non-being, is the source of the world but not through any active creation, willful otherwise, since activity cannot be ascribed to the unchangeable, immutable one. Platonists argues instead that the multiple cannot exist without the simple. The less perfect must, of necessity, emanate, or issue forth, from the perfect or more perfect. Thus, all of creation emanates from the one in succeeding stages of lesser and lesser perfection. These stages are not temporarily isolated, but occur throughout time as a constant process. Later Neol Platonic philosophies, especially Eamblitz, add hundreds of intermediate beings as emanations between the one and humanity, but Platonist system was much simpler in comparison. The one is not just an intellectual concept but something that can be experienced, an experience where one goes beyond all multiplicity. Platonus writes, we ought not even to say that he will see, but he will be at which he sees, if indeed it is possible any longer to distinguish between seen and seen, and not boldly to affirm that the two are one. Emanation by the one. Superficially considered, Platonus seems to offer an alternative to the orthodox Christian notion of creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, although Platonus never mentions Christianity in any of his works. The metaphysics of emanation, however, just like the metaphysics of creation, confirms the absolute transcendence of the one or of the divine, as the source of the being of all things that yet remains transcendent of them in its own nature. The one is in no way affected or diminished by these emanations, just as the Christian God in Norway is affected by some sort of exterior nothingness. Platonus, using a venerable analogy that would become crucial for he, largely Neoplatonic, metaphysics of developed Christian thought, likens the one to the sun which emanates light indiscriminately without thereby diminishing itself, or a reflection in a mirror which in no way diminishes or otherwise alters the object being reflected. The first emanation is Ness, divine mind, laws cause, order, thought, reason, identified metaphorically with the Demogen Plato's Timus. It is the first will towards good. From Ness proceeds the world soul, which Plotinus subdivides into upper and lower, identifying the lower aspect of soul with nature. From the world soul proceeds individual human souls, and finally, matter at the lowest level of being and thus the least perfected level of the cosmos. Despite this relatively pedestrian assessment of the material world, Platonus asserted the ultimately divine nature of material creation since it ultimately drives from the one, through the mediums of Ness and the world soul. It is by the good or through beauty that we recognize the one, in material things and then in the forms. The essentially devotional nature of Plotinus philosophy may be further illustrated by his concept of attaining ecstatic union with the One, Gnosis. Porphyry relates that Plotinus attained such a union four times during the years he knew him. This may be related to enlightenment, liberation, and other concepts of mystical union common to many Eastern and Western traditions, the true human and happiness. 
the philosophy of Plotinus has always exerted a peculiar fascination upon those whose discontent with things as they are has led them to seek the realities behind what they took to be merely the appearances of the sense. The philosophy of Plotinus Representative books from the Ennids, authentic human happiness for Plotinus consists of the true human identifying with that which is the best in the universe. Because happiness is beyond anything physical, Plotinus stresses the point that worldly fortune does not control true human happiness, and thus there exists no single human being that does not either effectively possess this thing we hope to constitute happiness. The issue of happiness is one of Plotinus' greatest imprints on Western thought, as he is one of the first to introduce the idea that Eustemonia, happiness, is attainable only within consciousness. True happiness has no cause reason or agenda. The true human is an incorporeal contemplative capacity of the soul, and superior to all things corporeal. It then follows that real human happiness is independent of the physical world. Real happiness is, instead, dependent on the metaphysical and authentic human being found in this highest capacity of reason. For a man, and especially the proficient, is not the complement of soul and body. The proof is that man can be disengaged from the body and disdain its nominal good as the flesh is doomed. The essence are spirit or individual awareness, even the personality is saved. The human who has achieved happiness will not be bothered by sickness, discomfort, etc., as his focus is on the greatest things. Authentic human happiness is the utilization of the most authentically human capacity of contemplation. Even in daily, physical action, the flourishing human's act is determined by the higher phase of the soul even in the most dramatic arguments Plotinus considers, if the proficient is subject to extreme physical torture, for example, he concludes this only strengthens his claim of true happiness being metaphysical, as the truly happy human being would understand that which is being tortured is merely a body, not the conscious self, and happiness could persist. Hung upside down upon this world myself Jesus Christ is crucified. Plotinus offers a comprehensive description of his conception of a person who has achieved eumonia. The perfect life involves a man who commands reason and contemplation. A happy person will not sway between happy and sad, as many of Plotinus' contemporaries believed. Stoics, for example, question the ability of someone to be happy, presupposing happiness is contemplation, if they are mentally incapacitated or even asleep. Plotinus disregards this claim, as the soul and to human do not sleep even exist in time, nor will a living human who has achieved eumonia suddenly stop using its greatest, most authentic capacity just because of the body's discomfort in the physical realm. The proficient's will is set always and only inward. Overall, happiness for Plotinus is a flight from this world's ways and things. And a focus on the highest, that is for and the one, Gnosis. Gnosis is the word for a mystical oneness, union, or unity in classical Greek. In Platonism, and especially in Neoplatonism, the goal of Gnosis is union with what is fundamental in reality, the one resource, or a monad. As is specified in the writings of Plotinus on knowledge, one can reach a state of tabularessa, a blank state where the individual may grasp or emerge with the one. This absolute simplicity means that the ness or the person is then dissolved, completely absorbed back into the monad. Here within the energies of Plotinus the monad can be referred to as the good above the demic. 
the more nadars to miss. False, is it one singular expression? The will are you one as the good, all is contained in the more nadant the more nadat is all pantheism. All division is reconciled in the one, the final stage before reaching singularity, called duality, dyad, is completely reconciled in the monad, source are one, simonism. As the one, source are substance of all things the monad is all-encompassing. As infinite and indeterminate all is reconciled in the dolimisa one. It is the demirak or the second emanation that is the nesin platinus. It is the demirak, creator, action, energy, or anus that proceeds and therefore causes the force, potential at one, to manifest as energy, or the diad called the material world. Nessus being, being in perception, intellect, manifest what is called solid, world solid. Lucifer Platinus was defined in his works as a reversing of the ontological process of consciousness via meditation, in the Western mind to uncontemplate, toward no thought, nestemic, and no division, dad, within the individual being. Platinus works his teachings to reconcile not only Plato with Aristotle but also the various world religions that he had personal contact with during his various travels. Plotinus works have an ascetic character in that they reject matter as an illusion, non-existent. Matter was strictly treated as immanent, with matter as essential to its being, having no two or transcendental character or essence, substance or This approach is called philosophical idealism. Relation with contemporary philosophy and religion. Plotinus's relation to Plato for several centuries after the Protestant Reformation, Neoplatonism was condemned as a decadent and oriental distortion of Platonism. In a famous 1929 essay, E.R. showed that key conceptions of Neoplatonism could be traced from the origin in Plato's dialogues, through his immediate followers, for instance, Spiazippus and the Neoepithagoreans, to Plotinus and the Neoplatonists. Thus Plotinus' philosophy was, he argued, not the starting point of Neoplatonism but its intellectual culmination further served reinforced this view and by 1954 Merlin could say the present tendency is toward bridging rather than widening the gap separating Platonism from Neoplatonism. Since the 1950s, the Tubingdon School of Plato Interpretation has argued that the so-called unwritten doctrines of Plato debated by Aristotle and the early academy strongly resemble Plotinus's metaphysics. In this case, the Neoplatonic creding of Plato would be, at least in the central area, historically justified. This implies that Neoplatonism is less of an innovation than it appears without the recognition of Plato's unwritten doctrines. Advocates of the Tubingdon School emphasize this advantage of their interpretation. They see Plotinus as advancing a tradition of thought begun by Plato himself. Plotinus's metaphysics, at least in broad outline, was therefore already familiar to the first generation of Plato's students. This confirms Plotinus' own view, for he considered himself not the inventor of a system but the faithful interpreter of Plato's doctrines, Plotinus and the Gnostics. At least two modern conferences within Hellenic philosophy fields of study have been held in order to address what Plotinus stated in his tract against the Gnostics and whom he was addressing it to, in order to separate and clarify the events and persons involved in the origin of the term Gnostic. From the dialogue, it appears that the word had an origin in the Platonic and Hellenistic tradition long before a group calling themselves Gnostics, or the group covered under the modern term Gnosticism, ever appeared. 
it would seem that this shift from Platonic to Gnostic usage has led many people to confusion. The strategy of sectarians taking Greek terms from philosophical contexts and drawing them to religious contexts was popular in Christianity, the cult of Isis and other ancient religious contexts including hermetic ones, see Alexander of Egmontage for an example. Plotinus and Thene or Platonists viewed Gnosticism as a form of heresy or a sectarianism to the Pythagorean and Platonic philosophy of the Mediterranean and Middle East. He accused them of using senseless jargon and being overly dramatic and insolent in the distortion of Plato's ontology. Plotinus attacks his opponents as untraditional, irrational and immoral and arrogant. He also attacks them as elitist and blasphemous to Plato for the Gnostics despising the immaterial world and its maker. The Neo-Platonic movement, though Plotinus would have simply referred to himself as a philosopher of Plato, seems to be motivated by the desire of Plotinus to revive the pagan philosophical tradition. Plotinus was not claiming to innovate with the Ennids, but to clarify aspects of the works of Plato that he considered misrepresented or misunderstood. Plotinus does not claim to be an innovator, but rather a communicator of a tradition. Plotinus referred to tradition as a way to interpret Plato's intentions. Because the teachings of Plato were for members of the academy rather than the general public, it was easy for outsiders to misunderstand Plato's meaning. However, Plotinus attempted to clarify how the philosophers of the academy had now arrived at the same conclusions, such as mysotheism or decism of the creator regard as an answer to the problem of evil, as the targets of his criticism. Against causal astrology, Plotinus seems to be one of the first to argue against the still popular notion of causal astrology. In the late Tractate 2.3, Are These Stars Causes? Plotinus makes the argument that specific stars influencing one's origin, a common Hellenistic theme, attributes irrationality to a perfect universe, and invites moral turpitude. Clarification needed he does, however, claim the stars and planets are in so old, as witnessed by the movement, influence, ancient world. The Empire Julian the Apollo state was deeply influenced by Neoplatonism, as was Hippotor of Alexandria, as well as many Christians, most notably Pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite. Saint Augustine, though offer often to as a Platonist, acquired his Platonist philosophy through the mediation of the Neo-Platonist teachings of Plotinus. Christianity, Plotinus philosophy had an influence on the development of Christian theology. In a history of Western philosophy, philosopher Bertrand Russell wrote that, to the Christian, the other world was the kingdom of heaven, to be enjoyed after death. To the Platonist, it was the eternal world of ideas, the real world as opposed to that of illusory appearance. Christian theologians combined these points of view and embodied much of the philosophy of Plotinus. Plotinus, accordingly, is historically important as an influence in molding the Christianity of the Middle Ages and of theology. The Eastern Orthodox position on energy, for example, is often contrasted with the position of the Roman Catholic Church, and, in part, this is attributed to varying interpretations of Aristotle and Plotinus, either through Thomas Aquinas for the Roman Catholics or Gregory of Nyssa for the Orthodox Christians. Islam, Muad Platonism and the ideas of Plotinus influenced medieval Islam as well, since the Sunni Abbasids fused Greek concepts into sponsoring state texts, and found great influence amongst the Ismaili Shia. Persian philosophers as well, such as Muhammad al-Nasafi and Abu Qubba Sajistani. 
by the 11th century, Muad played Charles Muzav adopted by the Fatimic state of Egypt, and taught by the Delhi. Muad played Charles was brought to the Fatimid court by Hamid al-Din al-Karamani, although his teachings differed from Nasafi and Sajistani, who were more aligned with original teachings of Plotinus. The teachings of Karamani in turn influenced philosophers such as Nasib Kasra of Persia, Judaism, as with Islam and Christianity, Muad played Charles in general and Plotinus in particular influenced speculative thought. Notable thinkers expressing Neoplatonic themes are Solomon ibn Kabiral, Latin, Avikaran, and Moras Ben Maimon, Latin, Maimonides. As with Islam and Christianity, apophatic theology and the privative nature of evil are two prominent themes that such thinkers picked up from either Plotinus or his successors, Renaissance. In the Renaissance the philosopher Marsili Orfi Kino set up an academy under the patronage of Corsimo di Medici in Florence, mirroring the Plato. His work was of great importance in reconciling the philosophy of Plato directly with Christianity. One of his most distinguished pupils was Pico della Marambola, author of an oration on the dignity of man. Our term Neoplatonist has its origins in the Renaissance, England. In England, Plotinus was the cardinal influence on the 17th-century school of the Cambridge Platonists, and on numerous writers from Samuel Taylor Coleridge to W. W. E. Yeats and Kathleen Rain. India, Sarpli Radhakrishnan and Ananda Kumarasquami used the writing of Plotinus in the old texts as a superlative elaboration upon Indian Manism, specifically Upanishadic and Advaita Vedantic thought. Kumaraswami has compared Plotinus' teachings to the Hindu school of Advaita of Denta, Advaita meaning not to Anandu. Advaita of Denta and Neoplatonism have been compared by J.F. Starr, Frederick Carpleston, Aldor Macris and Mario Piantelli, Radhakrishnan, Gwen Griffith Dickerson, and John Y. Fenton. Deep in death to emerge alive conquered the ignorance that humanity holds all dear, shattered and never taken up again spiritual death, on this the metaphysical theoterpedicast of another dead cat, this one named Plotinus, it was engraved by hand on his flea collar. Interpretations of Quantum Mechanics by Jonters.com The Only Living Metaphysical Poet an interpretation of quantum mechanics is an attempt to explain how the mathematical theory of quantum mechanics corresponds to reality, a noble attempt indeed, as math is a secondary function my little kittens, math cannot explain free will. Although quantum mechanics has held up to rigorous and extremely precise tests in an extraordinarily broad range of experiments, there exist a number of contending schools of thought over their interpretation, for all made of consciousness does not depend on a temporarily separate seeming self for my own internal expiance of that seeming outward place, these views on interpretation differ on such fundamental questions as whether quantum mechanics is deterministic or stochastic, which elements of quantum mechanics can be considered, real, and what is the nature of measurement among other matters. Despite nearly a century of debate and experiment, no consensus has been reached amongst physicists and philosophers of physics concerning which interpretation best represents reality for all these phantoms searching for cause among all effect must one day turn inward to myself, Jesus Christ your own human imagination here on the Metaphysical Theatre Anchor FM podcast. Then hell ah yes, then hell ah yes, then ah yes ah. Of making many books there is no end. Ecclesiastes 12:12. He that would perfect himself in any art whatsoever, let him betake himself to the reading of some sure and certain orc upon his art many times over, for to read.
seven any books upon your art produced confusionum rather than Learming, old saying. Of making many books there is no end. Ecclesiastes 12:12. He that would perfect himself in any art whatsoever, let him betake himself to the reading of some sure and certain orc upon his art many times over, for to read. 7. Any books upon your art produced confusionum rather than Learming, old saying. The metaphysical Thayer meditation sh peel a blah 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 factor for successful meditation, is this article written by other than worldly information on this metaphysical subject acting in our humble theater today follows selected arrangements edited and rewritten by John Tavers. At jaunters.com the most important factor for a successful meditation is volition. It is the voluntary decision to take a number of minutes of your day to consciously connect to your higher self, source, inner being. A commitment made easy by your own human imagination. That is the foundation everything else is built upon, all is imaginal activity, though human, reason, rejects it for obvious reasons. If you don't make that decision and don't take the time, you can't have a successful meditation because you will not have any meditation. Your own human imagination the ancients called Jesus Christ is alive within you now. Now, volition may seem vague to you and maybe it's not enough. But it is. It is much more powerful than you'd think. Ask for assistance and it will be given you. It is all already within, whole and waiting. Before you sit down for a meditation, focus on a thought like this, this quiet time I want to give to you, guide into my vortex, into peace, into joy, into love, into the essence of what I am. I will trust you to lead the way. If I need a word to help me, you will give it to me. If I need a thought that you will also give. And if I need a tranquil, open mind, that will be your gift to me. With this invitation you will not be alone battling with your thoughts anymore. You will have invited your inner being to help you find it. And it will help you. It will guide you. It will inspire you to the right flow. And all you need to do is let yourself go with the flow and be gradually pulled into the delicious vortex of non-resistance. When you trust this process and just ease into it, you will have a successful meditation, no matter what happened during it. Don't judge it or yourself if you think it should have gone in a different direction. How good the meditation feels depends only on your starting point and your belief on how hard it is. But it is a certainty it will feel better and better the more you do it, and especially if you do it daily. Any process can get you there you can use any meditation process to help you start focusing on a sound, on your breathing, on your heart chakra, on a mantra, on chanting, on counting breaths, on an image, on a deity, and then just let go of control, let go of all struggle, let go of all trying to achieve anything and just let yourself be. Let your inner being guide you. Feeling you are not thinking, but just watching, curious, interested. Easy. However it goes, just let it be and it will be good. Inner being will value your volition to connect and will continue to guide you next time. You will start noticing leaps in well-being you feel during a meditation after only a few sessions. Try it out and allow yourself to be surprised and delighted to where it leads you. The great silent inner void there is a fear that is common among spiritual seekers is that by pursuing a spiritual path they are losing their passion and ambitions in life that they don't fit into the world anymore. This is a sign, for many people, as they are deepening in their understanding, they are returning home in their own heart. Your journey is an old journey. To be honest, there is nothing to be sad about. There is a joy in your heart that's blossoming more and more. Don't let the world trouble you. Sometimes we are a bit embarrassed to be changed, but you should be happy that things which need to be changed can change. 
In fact, when you discover the unchanging, you're much more free to let the wind of change blow out the old dead leaves. Joy is in you, peace is in you, love is blossoming. It's so much higher than anything previous. Tilda Muji when the soul wants to experience something, he throws out an image in fro. This is a core answer to my question and what is metaphysical poetry, and who is a living? Metaphysical poet. Metaphysical poetry. Highly intellectualized poetry marked by bold and ingenious conceits, incongruous imagery, complexity and subtlety of thought, frequent use of paradox, and often by deliberate harshness or rigidity of expression metaphysical poets write on weighty topics such as love and religion using metaphysical poetry. Highly intellectualized poetry marked by bold and ingenious conceits, incongruous imagery, complexity and subtlety of thought, frequent use of paradox, and often by deliberate harshness or rigidity of expression. The word metaphysical is a combination of the prefix meaning after with the word physical. The phrase after physical refers to something that cannot be explained by science. None of the metaphysical poets that I read about lives now. Thank you, your answer is now on the Metaphysical Theatre Podcast on Anchor FM, answering my question and what is metaphysical poetry, and who is a living metaphysical poet. Poems for free for me, you know me. Yes, we can. You know me. I have a phone and a pen. But today I learned Althea from prison, when love with unconfined wings hovers within my gates. And my divine Althea brings to whisper at the grates. When I light angled in her hair and fettered to her eye, the birds that want in the air know no such liberty. When, following cups run swiftly round with no lanterns, our careless heads with roses, crowned, our hearts with loyal flames. When thirsty grief and wine we steep, we healths and drafts go free fishes that tipple in the deep no no such liberty when let it like confined i will trailer throw chasing the sweetness mercy majesty and glories of my king when the first shall voice aloud how good he is how great should be enlarged winds that curl the flood no no such liberty stone walls do not of a prison make nor iron bars a cage minds innocent and quiet take that for a hermitage if i have freedom and my love and my soul am free, angels alone, that's her above, enjoy such liberty, Colonel, Lovelace, her golden treasury of the best songs and lyrical pieces in the English language, selected by Francis Turner Palgrave and thank you, we all know that it will be Trump, in 2020 so I myself will cast my ballot in 2020, for the commander in chief, Donald John, Trump, for more years, for more years, for more years, and thank you very much for, Listening to the Metaphysical Theater here on Anchor FM.